Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. I'm here today with Bill Janeway, INET co-founder, board member, collaborator in many, many things. He spent a great deal of time in the venture capital world at Warburg Pincus and has illuminated for us in a wonderful course the relationship between technology, governance, with an eye towards addressing climate change. We may be talking about that a little bit later. But Bill, thanks for joining me. I'm uh, really excited to talk about what others will call the Janeway Institute. You'll call the new institute at Cambridge, which is a follow-on after roughly 10 years of a INET Cambridge. And I attended virtually your introductory meetings a week or so ago and uh, heard all kinds of enthusiasm from your team and many, many excellent scholars, including Joseph Stiglitz, Hyun Shin, and Helene Ray. So I think there's a lot of a lot to celebrate and a lot of very good people are, how do you say, pushing the cart with you. So thanks for joining me and uh, exploring what it is that you're doing. What uh, I guess I'd start with is very simple. What inspired you to create the Janeway Institute? Where does that come from in your own heart? Thank you, Rob. Thanks very much for this opportunity to share the history, the experience, the process, and the promise that have all gone together into creating this new this new institute. the the origins The origins go back actually more than fifty years, back to when I was a research student at Cambridge University. I had the honor of receiving a Marshall Scholarship when I uh, uh, graduated from Princeton. I was determined that I was going to go to Cambridge and, if you like, learn in the shade of John Maynard Keynes. I'd encountered Keynes as, a, as an undergraduate. I had had many conversations with my father, who'd actually met Keynes in the early 1930s in London, and I was deeply inspired by his, uh, both his vision for the, uh, the way the world works and the importance of integrating into that vision an understanding of politics and finance in order to have an economics that made sense and corresponded with the, uh, the, the dynamics of the real world. I, I wrote my thesis, not unrelated to all of that, uh, my PhD thesis on economic policy in Britain from 1929 to 31. A labor government was elected, the first majority labor government ever, was elected with a mandate to uh, improve or to, to, to benefit the poor. Uh, it represented the, the organized working class, uh, and it was overwhelmed by the Great Depression. Um, and, and, and it was or overwhelmed by the forces that generated the Great Depression, many of which came out of the financial system. I took away from that experience of spending four years of very, very focused work. Um, I took away three lessons 
deep lessons that stayed with me um, all the time from then until now, and I expect I will die with. The first is the deep interdependence of the financial system and the real economy of employment, consumption, investment savings, that the money is not a veil, money is not neutral. What goes on in the financial system influences what goes on in the real economy, and it feeds back from the real economy to the financial system. The second is that that interactive, interdependent, complex system is fragile. It does not, we cannot depend upon it to, to, to sit in a state of stable equilibrium. And that's in very good part because every participant, individual and institutional, is operating, and this is deep Keynesian, operating under conditions of more or less radical uncertainty about what the future consequences of decisions that have to be made today, whether to buy or sell shares, whether to raise or lower interest rates if you're the central bank, whether to build a new factory, whether to buy securities. All of those issues are made without the ability to know what the longer term consequences are going to be. Now, because of those lessons, when in roughly 1970, I was considering what I was going to do, what I decided I could not do was stay within the confines of mainstream econ uh, academic economics. Uh, it was uh, very much a case that uh, Paul Samuelson and MIT uh, had won a war with Keynes's descendants from whom I, whom I had studied, who had influenced me. Um, Richard Kahn, uh, the author of The Multiplier and Keynes's leading uh, student, uh, was my supervisor. I knew Joan Robinson well. Pierre Straffa, uh, 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 Pavanetti, uh, 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 Nikki Kaldor were all active in the faculty. Um, and their complex and undisciplined, in some many respects, approach to economics had simply been overrun uh, beaten in the field, if you like, by Paul Samuelson and Bob Solo and by the neoclassical model, which kind of, as, as Joan Robinson called it, bastard Keynesianism, you took Keynes to say we can now assume that all resources are fully employed at all times. And then that allows us to return to the perfectly competitive, markets of microeconomics that were the centerpiece of Samuelson's textbook. I decided I couldn't teach that. So I went on what I call my 35-year my sabbatical, which led me into venture capital, led me into the emergent world of computing relatively very early when IBM was still dominant, uh, led me to participate very actively in, uh, if you like, contributing to IBM's loss of control as computing decentralized, became networked, and then globally internetworked, uh, and a number of uh, significant companies uh, emerged at a time when, uh, first, the stock market was so depressed that I try to tell my students, I try to explain to my students what the stock market was like in the mid-1970s. 
when the Dow Jones average was at bottomed out at 550. That's 550, not 5,500. Um, and, uh, and from there, it happened that in the late 1990s, as many of your viewers and listeners will know either by experience or certainly having read about it, the great tech internet dot-com bubble exploded. The NASDAQ rose by a factor of five in less than three years, four years. And everything that I'd been working on with my colleagues and partners uh, in, uh, at Warburg Pincus uh, came to be valued at what appeared to be uh, extremely high values. And I could look back at that point from the perspective of 1999 to what I'd learned in 1969 about 1929. And I could say to my partners, you know, I've seen this movie before. I know how it ends. So in collaboration with my boss, John Vogelstein, a great investor, chief investment officer at Warburg Pinketh, we basically liquidated my tech portfolio as aggressively as we possibly could. And my first thought was, thank you, Cambridge. It was that experience that had educated me and equipped me to be able to respond effectively to this unsustainable bubble in the stock market. Um, and a couple of years later, three, four years later, I retired from active managerial responsibility at Warburg Pecos. Uh, my wife and I decided that we'd take a break. I didn't want to be looking over the shoulder of the young fellows and a few women, not enough, who were in, now in charge. Uh, and we established an alternative residence in Cambridge just in time for the global financial crisis to make everything I'd learned at Cambridge back in the late 60s, early 70s, to make it profoundly relevant. And then, Rob, I, I opened the Financial Times one day, and there was a full-page ad for something called the Institute for New Economic Thinking, uh, which was about to hold, it was announcing, its launch conference at King's College, Cambridge. I hadn't heard anything about this, but I read, the, I read the ad carefully. I saw that there was a fellow involved, as it happened, chairman of the board, named Anatole Koletsky, whom I'd known uh, as an absolutely outstanding uh, economic journalist. I, I, I got hold of, of Anatole. Uh, he introduced me to you. We met. We started talking. I think we shared uh, a, a, an informed understanding, both of the shortcomings of mainstream neoclassical economics, but also of the opportunity that was being opened up by the impact of the global financial crisis and the Great Recession. You asked if I might consider joining the board of INET. I did. I spent a year or so engaged and learning the various programs, projects, initiatives that you were orchestrating and um, decided that uh, I could uh, make a contribution of money as well as time and, and, and attention. Uh, had a number of conversations with George Soros to leverage what I did with further commitment from George and um, became, as you say, a, a co-founder. And what happened next was really not 
dependent upon me. I was only a kind of, um, oh, I don't know, uh, toastmaster for it. But INET was looking at the possibility of establishing, supporting uh, centers of research uh, excellence that played into the, the, that double theme, the, the shortcomings of received doctrine and the opportunity opened up by the crisis and the Great Recession. And I was reasonably well acquainted with the people who are now in charge at economics at Cambridge long after my generation, the generation I'd learned from, had retired. Um, and I, I started the conversation there. But it, it, what was different about it was, I think, that the proposition that uh, you and I had discussed was that INET would consider significant funding if it was the faculty of economics that generated the consensus, a consensus program of research that a new center, a new institute would be embedded within the faculty, not outside of it, not a sort of independent think tank, but as an engine for a storied, historically enormously significant faculty to uh, uh, increase its capacity, its reach, its significance uh, in recruiting and, re and, and retention of first-class scholars. And uh, it took about a year and a half or so, but somewhat, I think, to the amazement of people who know economic academics, uh, the economics faculty of Cambridge actually did produce a consensus program with a set of research themes that were very much uh, aligned with not just understanding what had happened, but going deeper into the dynamics of an economic system that uh, was uh, had demonstrated its fragility so dramatically. Uh, and had broken the rules that mainstream economics had, had laid down for it. Um, no need to go into, into great detail about it, but over the next 10 years, with very substantial support from New York, matched by local sources, 50-50, so there was real buy-in and skin in the game from different <clears throat> elements of the broader Cambridge community, Cambridge INET, the Cambridge INET Institute, played the role that, that we had hoped it would and played it so effectively that as it became clear, and appropriately so, that INET support should wind down, um, I realized that the potential for perpetuating the mission and the effect of the Cambridge INET Institute was really compelling. And that's what led to the, um, the funding that <clears throat> endows now in perpetuity the new institute to pursue these themes, uh, themes that address uncertainty, the complex ways that policy are translated through the economic, in, into the real economy, the fact that, the fact that market participants are not autonomous, independent agents. They operate in a context, a social networked context, 
and of course, above all, the integration of finance and economics that has been forced on both disciplines by the real world. So that's kind of the, the mission going forward. There's direct carryover, uh, a number of the leading economists in Cambridge who played central roles in the Cambridge INET Institute will continue as such in the new institute. With the endowment it has, however, it will have the potential to evolve creatively, responsively. Already it's working, Cambridge INET was already working across the traditional disciplinary boundaries with close alliance with the Bennett Policy and Public Policy Institute. <coughs> Diane Coyle there with the history department looking at joint appointments in economic history. And with data science, the, data, the computer lab, the, uh, uh, one of the original computer science departments in the world, where there's a very powerful team and the potential for bringing together a program in data science and economics is being explored very actively. So that cheers me up a lot. And it, to, as far as I'm concerned, it really is a testimonial to INET. It's a testimonial to INET's reach, its leverage, and its ability to launch initiatives, which then can take on a life of their own and continue and extend what INET was founded to do a dozen years ago. Good. I'm going to pay a little tribute to my late father, because as you and I were exploring at Cambridge, and I was looking at other places with your help, Berkeley, Princeton's Bentheim Center and others, my father, who was retired, was a f famous physician and uh, medical researcher. And he said to me, so you had this crisis. This was uh, early 2012. You had this crisis and you're finding these institutes. And he said, well, remember when you were young and I told you if you're going to be a rebel, you can't be a dragon. And I said, what do you mean, Dad? He said, if you're, they think you're a dragon and you don't meet with them, then you're a dragon. But when you go meet with them and you do joint ventures with them, they see that you're a human and not a dragon anymore and you become more effective. And uh, I remember him giving me that, that talk at, at his bedside at the nursing home and uh, trying to be, which you might call, creating Trojan horses with a tremendous talent and a faith in the good spirits of the people you'd work with in, in many instances, uh, Cambridge really did blossom. And uh, It has. And one, one area that I think was really strong in which we, we saw blossom at Cambridge, but much more broadly, much more broadly around the world. In 2008, while clearly macroeconomics uh, had cut itself off, had abstracted itself from any connection with the financial system, any exposure to that what happened in the banking system, the capital markets might have an influence on real, eco real economic factors, and had rooted itself in a, quote, micro-foundation based on the, 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 the fa fantastical abstraction of the rational representative agent. However, across the field in microeconomics, in many places, there was absolutely first-class, practical, empirically founded work that was undermining the, those micro-foundations radically. Uh, the, I, I, I remember so well 
the uh, Nobel Prize in Economics in 2004 that happened to go to three great economists uh, who happened to be all closely aligned with the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Joe Stiglitz, uh, in reverse academic, uh, alphabetical order, Joe Stiglitz, Mike Spence, and George Akerlof, each of whom had contributed to our being able to understand why markets do not and cannot be generated out of the intertemporally optimizing behavior of agents who know fully what the consequences of their action are going to be, who share the same model of how the world works, the same the way the economy works, and, and, and the model that happens to be correct. Each in their way had contributed at the micro level. And I remember well that, that George's, George Akerlof's Nobel lecture was on the, the, the theme of it was, the title of it was, Behavioral Macroeconomics. And I, I took that as an inspiration, as an agenda that I hope uh, Cambridge INET has contributed to and the new institute will contribute more to, but more generally has begun to take hold, uh, begun to take hold in the discipline much more broadly. And uh, I, I am encouraged by what has been going on in these last 10 years. Yeah, well, the things like Akerlof's uh, EARN program, Economic Research in Norms, Identity, Norms, and Narrative, and his uh, book with Rachel Cranton about taking, which you might call taking the ice off of preferences and utility functions and seeing where people's desire comes from. And we can go on. Joe Stiglitz has a whole constellation of things that he's done. Mike Spence in the realm of technology is very, very sensitive. And, and there are many, many, many more. Those three happen to, uh, how would I say, they, I thought they divided up the prize too tightly. For, all three of them could have had it alone. Well, that's right. <laughs> but, well, that's... That's fair, but it, it was it was good to, to see that that work recognized even before yes. the crisis. That's my yes, point. That's right. Even before the crisis, but today, what we can see, just looking broad brush across the discipline, first to me, the first really important and very broad, quantifiable, observable aspect of how economics has evolved in the last decade has been the shift towards empirical work, the credibility revolution, as it's often referred to. The Nobel Prize this year was given to three people. Unfortunately, Kruger was not there to share that prize. He surely would have. But that most of that work's been done at the micro level, but it's begun to spill over uh, using instruments, uh, various techniques to fight our way through the sea of correlations that the sea of correlations that are generated by more and more and more data into understanding real causal relationships. And most, most uh, uh, it happens that just before we went on the air, just before we started this conversation, I was reading a terrific article in the Journal of Economic Perspectives, the open access and uh, accessible intellectually uh, publication of the American Economic Association by uh, Emmy Nakamura of Berkeley, uh, Field Medal winner, and her co-author John Steinson 
on identification in macroeconomics, taking instruments, tools, techniques from microeconomics and applying it, applying it to macroeconomic data in order to be able to draw some pretty strong distinctions between models that make sense of the world and models that really don't, like real business cycle theory, for example. That as um, Paul Krugman uh, uh, famously uh, noted in 2009, 10 explained the Great Recession as either the, um, the great rusting, all the capital, physical capital of the world suddenly became unusable, or the great vacation, uh, the, the workers of the world decided to go on holiday uh, because whatever happened, it couldn't be a result of a shortfall in, in aggregate demand. That could never be responsible for mass unemployment and bankruptcies and financial <laughs> distress. Uh, so that, again, as I say, this, this really cheers me up. And it, it, it says to me that INET's been contributing to a movement, uh, a movement that has had real impact within the discipline and is now beginning to spill over, as we can see, frustrating as it may be from moment to moment, but spill over to inform the policy initiatives of the Biden administration, uh, which are so different, go so far beyond what even 10 years ago in the, or 12 years ago in, under the immediate impact of the financial crisis uh, were considered to be inconceivable. Uh, politically impossible, intellectually impossible to grasp. And a, and a dozen years later, they're not. They're part of the policy debate. They may be stalled, they may be limited, they may be frustrated more than any of the, certainly you and I would like, but they're on the table. And they're on the table with real backing from disciplined, rigorous research. Yeah, and I, I see a situation where the great financial crisis was traumatic to experience as a nation, macro statistics, but in it, the silver lining was the gift of breaking down what you might call hardened false confidence and expertise, having to recognize the fault lines. And as that debate opened and well-intentioned, sometimes empirically oriented people started to look more closely we developed a momentum that moved into, I mean, through finance, but also started looking at the questions of distribution, inequality, race and gender discrimination and their contribution to inequality, and then things related to climate, things related to the common good. Absolutely. And, and um, this, my, this puts me in mind um, that um, some more than half a dozen years ago, uh, when we were sitting around at, uh, I think it was at a board meeting of INET, and <clears throat> the question kept coming up, well, <clears throat> this phrase, new economic thinking, is all very well, but it sort of covers almost anything under the sun. What do we mean by it? And <clears throat> I, I did a little exercise that you may recall, and, it, and the output of which can be found on the INET website. Um, I, I wrote down a what I consider, just me, uh, a short paper called How to Recognize New Economic Thinking. And if you indulge me for a minute, I'll, I'm gonna read out just a short paragraph, four points, four pillars, 
four pillars of new economic thinking. First, recognition that economic and financial decisions are necessarily made under varying degrees of uncertainty with response both to their direct consequences and more broadly to the future environment in which those consequences will be realized. That's one. Two, explicit efforts to reintegrate economic and financial studies, both theoretical and empirical, all the way up and down the structural hierarchy of society. Three, reinstatement of the distribution of income and wealth as core subjects of economic and financial analysis. And then finally, taking history seriously, thick history that reaches beyond quantitative data to take account of the evolution of the social and political and cultural context which condition economic and financial experience. And I, I unequivocally can say that INET has contributed along all four of those dimensions. Uh, there are new phenomena, new uh, academic phenomena that uh, INET has not directly, but, but just to list, those are to point out INET's initial funding of um, Piketty's empirical work. Yeah, Tony on, Atkinson uh, and uh, Piketty working together. and uh, uh, Right, on, on inequality. Um, the Price of Inequality, Joe Stiglitz's book. I worked very closely right. with him on that. Roman Friedman on um, uncertainty uh, and uh, uncertainty economics. Um, all the work on, on at, from micro to macro on where finance meets uh, the economy, whether it's, it's, it's uh, uh, the uh, constraints on access to finance uh, for disadvantaged people in the population, to the spillover, the other side of it, the, uh, the, the phenomena of bubbles occasionally productive, I contributed to that letter, uh, literature, but uh, most often not, uh, particularly when it's focused on real estate. Um, and I think there's more work to be done. I think that we're beginning to see out of uh, a, a young generation of historians um, who are uh, rewriting American history, uh, and it's not the only one to be rewritten, in the context of the evolution of capitalism over the last four or five hundred years, which includes recognition that the most important source of wealth in what became the United States through till 1860 was wealth held in the form of human beings, of slaves, more important than industrial wealth, more important than agricultural wealth. So all of that and you know <clears throat> leads me to look positively both on on the discipline as it is continuing to evolve but also on the potential influence of the discipline on the policy discussion and decisions that we will have to make. Obviously, that particularly gets us over into response to climate change as the existential challenge now, <clears throat> now on the table. Yeah. Well, you've talked about uh, the role of economic history in your formative experience and again now. And what I feel like is that Economic history as a discipline and the history of economic thought are teaching people to be multidisciplinary because they have to look at the institutions. They borrow across disciplines without even knowing it and synthesize 
a, a historian is a person who goes and looks for the clues and the methods to explain what did happen, not trying to concoct hypotheses about what might happen in the future. Yeah, Rob, there's a very, can we take a moment on that? Sure, I'd like to take sure. a couple of moments on that because first of all, uh, there are two circumstances that I think we have to take account of, which are not good. Economic history has very largely, as you know, been driven out of economic departments. Berkeley is one of the few places where Barry Eichen Green and his colleagues have maintained a real commitment to rigorous economic history. Um, I may say in, in, in parenthesis, in, in, in Cambridge, what we're discussing is joint appointments between the history faculty and the economics faculty to rebuild and to build out a stronger, broader base in economic history. But there is an institutional challenge, which I think, in my view, reflects the triumph, the, the transitory triumph of mainstream neoclassical economics in the last quarter of the 20th century, which suggested that not necessarily that history is bunk, but that history is kind of irrelevant because we have our models that abstract truth about the world, so we don't have to go back and look at the actual experience. But there was also a, another phenomenon, uh, which was cliometrics. Um, uh, and particularly the cliometrics associated with the Nobel Prize winning, uh, late, uh, very significant scholar, Bob Fogel, Robert Fogel. Um, and in particular, uh, his work on the railroads, the, economics of the, the economic significance of the railroads in the United States, and on uh, the economics of slavery. Now that work was animated by taking historical data and force fitting it into the neoclassical production thesis, the neoclassical production model. And it basically insisted that at the macro level, all resources are fully employed, but second, the only thing to focus on is the efficiency with which resources are used. So in the railroad work, which I'm very closely uh, uh, studied, a student of, uh, Fogel purported to demonstrate that if you'd taken the railroads out, if the railroads had never been built, the economic process would have invested equivalent amounts in building more canals, uh, in more turnpikes, more roads, and the total loss of economic activity in 1890 with no railroads would have been on the order of 2 to 4%. Now, coming along a generation later, uh, two really terrific economic historians, Hornbeck and Dave Donaldson, have looked at the data around that and have broadened the scope beyond the solo production model to include the impact of the railroads first on land values, enormous impact on the redistribution of wealth uh, and of income on whether or not you happen to be in the town that the railroad went through 
rather than away from it. And the transformation of market access in turn led to fundamental restructuring of the economic geography of the United States, leading to a massive increase in industrial concentration in manufacturing economies of scale. And in, their, in, in the conclusion of the work on the impact on manufacturing, the outcome is that without the railroads, 1890 would have had an economy that was on the order of 25%, not 2%, smaller. So that, that again, that really excites me. It, it motivates me that this is the kind of work that minds have been liberated to explore. And uh, I, look, I look forward now, particularly as I was mentioning, to this new um, re rethinking of American history in the context of the history of capitalism. As you know, I think it's accessible on the INET website. I uh, published a paper on uh, Jonathan Levy of Chicago's right. Right. Uh, extraordinary book called The Ages of American Capitalism. Mm -hmm. um, and I urge it on anyone who wants to engage with this new literature. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, Bill, also your book, Doing Capitalism, which looked at a kind of history but structural interaction between basic science and government, markets, and the entrepreneurs, the people who I think, I used to say, do the D and the R&D and transform things into economic value through the markets. You spent a lot of time in the private sector. We're now looking at what, what you illuminate in your book and in the course that I mentioned at the outset is how important the state was in catalyzing many of these transformations. I remember I, I, I knew in the years I worked on Capitol Hill, the late Felix Rowton and his book, Bold Endeavors. I remember reading the manuscript as he was preparing it and giving him comments. I believe it was 11 different projects where government helped transform the structure and productivity of society. But you're, you've... I mean, with regard to Silicon Valley, I've always scratched my head when I go out and spend time in the summer because everybody is a Ayn Rand free marketeer, except the government played a pretty big role in how they got off the launching pad. And I'm not saying they don't have tremendous energy and ability, but it was it was a complementary with an E process. Well, well, my, my book, uh, my book came out of a recognition that uh, as a working venture capitalist in the digital, the, the nascent, emergent digital economy of, uh, from semiconductors to computers to software and to the services that were enabled, um, that we, entrepreneurs and the venture capitalists who are financing them, were all dancing on a platform that had been built by the United States Department of Defense, just as my colleagues, friends, and peers who were investing in the genetic revolution or the biotechnology revolution were dancing on a platform that had been constructed by the National Institutes for Health. Um, and that led me going back uh, first to um, sponsor research that was published uh, through a project from the Social Science Research Council uh, co-edited by Naomi Lamoureux and the late Ken Sokoloff on financing innovation in the United States. Series of papers. One of those papers was written by a brilliant young uh, historian at the Harvard Business School named Tom Nicholas, 
who went on 15 years later to publish a great history of American, cap American venture capital called VC. Uh, and I urge that on anyone. It's a terrific work, and it certainly centers the, um, the history of the rise of venture capital as, as uh, dependent upon the investments made by the state, not only in fundamental research, but as the first customer, the first supportive and collaborative customer for new technology that wasn't yet ready for commercial prime time. Uh, but there was an intersection there, and that's why I, I always talk about the three-player game, because there's a third player in that game whose history and role in financing innovation actually goes back before an active, if you like, Hamiltonian state reached substantial scale, and that is financial speculation. The role of bubbles in financing uh, the canals of the late 18th and early 19th century, above all the railroads of the 19th century. And in the 20th century, first, during the Roaring Twenties, uh, as I tell my students, the Roaring Twenties weren't all about bathtub gin and flappers in the Charleston. It was also about building out the electrification of the world. In the United States, the increase in generating capacity was of three to four times in only five or six years, uh, funded by a massive uh, speculation focused on the public utility holding companies, most of which went bankrupt in the Great Depression. But like the railroads had gone bankrupt after the railway manias, uh, nobody pulled up the railroad tracks, nobody tore down the electricity wires, and just as in 2000, when the great internet tech bubble burst, nobody pulled up the dark fiber. It was there, for good or ill, available to uh, uh, Facebook and YouTube and Google, et cetera, et cetera, and Amazon. Um, so this, this interactive mode between, this is what, of course, in a pragmatic way, looked at not just the way that the interaction of finance in the real economy can be destructive, as it was in 1929 to 31, 33, or as it again was in 2008, 9, but it can be constructive when it mobilizes resources on a scale far beyond what any set of rational, prudent investors uh, ranking projects on the basis of the net present value of their expected future cash flows. Of course, this could also spill over into the kind of fantasy games being played in the stock market today. Um, I have to say, I think that the, the bubble that's going on between crypto and the meme stocks and the incredible valuation of the tech giants um, may be the first bubble that not deliberately, but quite directly has been sponsored by the central bank. Uh, negative real risk-free interest rates have sent not just retail investors, but major institutional investors on the road looking for uh, the opportunity to accept extraordinary risk, illiquidity, in pursuit of positive real returns. Um, I have frankly little doubt that this will not end and end disruptively at such time as the Fed, as, as the 
market participants recognize that the Fed, the Bank of England, the European Central Bank are going to be raising interest rates and eliminating the quantitative easing. And um, uh, this will feed back and there will be disruption. Uh, but it is to say that what is going on in those institutions and in those markets has enormous bearing on what's going on in the real economy, including on the one hand, the allocation, the acceleration of investment in productivity enhancing invest, uh, uh, assets, uh, but on the other hand, also generating uh, transitory uh, bubbles in wealth based on uh, the financing and valuation of businesses who have no potential whatsoever ever to generate positive cash flow from operations uh, and have a, a, a fundamental value to lean on when markets, as they say, uh, uh, lose the fantastic element and begin again to look at some measures of cash flow as the basis for valuation. Yeah, you kind of get a push and a pull. And in many ways, the central banks kind of created an optionality. We're going to give you so much liquidity, it's only going to go up. And But, but when that runs out of steam, then it's a two-way street again, and the tide can go out. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Bill, let's talk a little bit about the issue of climate, because here, a role of government, a role of vitality of the private sector, some kind of catalytic connection. And because we're in a globalized world, it's not one government. Governments have to cooperate, number one. And number two, because it's about the public good, the price signals won't always tell you how valuable it is left to the market to its own devices. So how do we elevate from what Greta Thunberg calls blah, 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 to getting it done. <laughs> well, I, I, I think about this in a, a couple of different, through a couple of different lenses. First, uh, one lens, lens one. And this may sound, it's, it's, it's not cynical, and it, it, it really is, um, I think, an important way, an important way to mobilize for how we get things done. Um, at, in one dimension, the threat, the reality of climate change, the necessity of response, does have the economic and political significance, weight, of a major war. It is an existential crisis which can legitimize government programs, policies, interventions that under, quote, normal circumstances would be off the table. That, that, that's number one. And in a way, I'd look at this as a potential gift to the entrepreneurial politicians who can mobilize it as, in effect, better than a war, because this is one that creates the opportunity for mobilization without having to kill anybody. On the contrary, to save lives. That's one. But two, but two. Like all economic phenomena, the devil is in the distributional consequences, both of the event and of the response. Joe Stiglitz's work with Nick Stern and his paper that derives from that, which I use in my course in Cambridge, is outstanding 
in recognizing how merely responding with the kind of the, the, the automatic knee-jerk economist response that if we only get the prices right, then the markets will deal with it. So a, 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 an across-the-board carbon tax is the magic bullet that will lead to the efficient response to climate change. As Joe points out with his usual uh, absolutely uh, uh, cutting rigor, the problem, of course, is that the any carbon tax is going to have radically different consequences for people whose to be technical, whose elasticity of demand with respect to the price of carbon is very low versus those who's very high. And by the way, guess what? That corresponds with poorer people versus richer people. Uh, in Maine, if you want to have a job outside of Portland, by and large, you have to drive an hour or two hours to work each way. Telling people, well, you could always move to Portland uh, you know, there are such things as general equilibrium effects. Uh, tell me how I'm going to be able to afford to move to Portland when the housing stock isn't elastic in its supply and demand drives up prices, just like it has, of course, in the other coastal cities and cities like San Francisco. So regulatory interventions will undoubtedly need to be negotiated sector by sector as well as some of those uh, interventions will lead directly or indirectly to increased price and the, any tax can be redistributed back. But linking it, linking it closely to the benefits makes one remember just what a genius, a costly genius, Franklin Roosevelt was. He demanded that before any Social Security benefits be paid, taxes be collected in an individual Social Security account so that every individual would know that they had skin in the game of the Social Security system. And as he said at the time, that way, quote, that way no goddamn politician will ever be able to take away my Social Security. He was right. The cost, of course, was its massive contribution to the Roosevelt recession of 1938, which was, except for 1929 to 33, the single worst contraction, uh, measured contraction in the 20th century in the United States, which contributed mightily to the Republican recovery in Congress in the 1938 elections with further consequences. But what I'm saying is that uh, the challenge the opportunity represented by response to climate change can only be implemented in a complex negotiated way and the conversations between President Biden and Joe Manchin are just the beginning just the beginning second the second distributional aspect of course is that's just within the United States but the distributional impact across the world of climate change. Uh, the exist it's one thing to say it's an existential crisis for the United States. For the people in Bangladesh, let alone the people in Mauritania, it really is. 
I mean, and and the the spillovers, the might we have seen nothing uh, alike what the potential migratory movement. There is no place in the rich world to hide from the consequences of climate change. And the more extreme it is, the more extreme will those consequences be in the movement of peoples. Uh, and it, it's, so this is where, again, entrepreneurial politicians, and I have deep, deep respect when they emerge, and they have emerged from time to time, whether it's Abraham Lincoln or Franklin Roosevelt, uh, entrepreneurial politicians can show how it is in fact in the constituency's self-interest to be generous. This is what, after World War II, it, given the consequences of the catastrophe documented by Keynes in his first book, The Economic Consequences of the Versailles Peace, uh, that was the lessons that was learned. It was in America's self-interest to rebuild its former enemies, to create the Marshall Plan, to support the revitalization of Japanese industry, uh, rather than to impose the, the uh, Carthaginian peace that effectively had been imposed in 1918. Uh, so I, you know, Rob, I have to confess, I'm a, I'm a temperamental optimist. Uh, the fellow at uh, Warburg Pincus who hired me, my collaborator in using the lessons of 1929 to save us in 1999, John Vogelstein, always liked to say that um, you can't survive as a venture capitalist if you're a pessimist. The first time you lose a company, you'll slit your throat, you'll be out of the game. <laughs> <laughs> so I am an optimist, but I think there's some basis. I think there's some basis for optimism. It's not by any means entirely due to the positive transformation of the discipline of economics and its reintegration with the discipline of finance, but it does have something to do with that. And, and that's where I think we can take some pride jointly and severally, INET and its children, and what we've been up to over the last dozen years. Well, Bill, I have to say, riding shotgun with you over this decade, your collaboration, your inspiration, you becoming a founder of INET is a big, big part of that success. I'm not talking just about money. I'm talking about what goes on between your ears in the boardroom when you're on the phone with me or my staff and everything else. And I guess... It, so I can be the optimist for the moment. I think the new institute, the Janeway Institute, has tremendous potential because the precedent, precedent on which it was founded, the place where it's based, which was your source of learning and your leadership, I think that's, that's an awful lot of upside for the continuation of new economic thinking in your new institute. Well, thank you, Rob. You were present at the creation and uh, don't be a stranger. And no, no uh, we will continue, we'll continue this collaboration long into the future. I agree. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Rob. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it. 
And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking But I'll know my song well before I start singing